This talk is brought to you by iBiology.org, and this audio was taken from a video available on our website. Imagine that you're taking a walk with me outside. It's a beautiful sunny day, and we're climbing up a small hill, and we've reached the peak. Take a deep breath in, maybe catch your breath a little bit, and look around. What do you see? There's a beautiful view, and there's lots of greenery around you. Maybe you also notice some really vibrantly colored flowers, or the different types of trees that are around. Maybe there are birds flying above you, chattering to each other, or looking for their next meal. You might also even notice the insects underneath your feet. It's a really beautiful scene, and there's lots of species around you. But have you ever stopped to think about what makes us unique from other species? Or more broadly speaking, how did we all get here? My name is Maiko Kitaoka, and I'm a PhD candidate at UC Berkeley. This is a photo of me in front of the Golden Gate Bridge, and I hope you can also appreciate that there are plants around me as well as some hidden marine animals behind me in the water. Again, there's a lot to see here, and I hope that by the end of my talk, I'll be able to convince you that all of us got here through a combination of cell division and evolution. Now, these are both two very different scales in biology, but they're both crucial to helping us get to where we are today. So let's start with cell division. This is an essential process that all of our cells go through. And actually, every organism starts with cell division. For humans, we all start as single fertilized egg cells. But actually, the human body is made up of trillions of cells. So in order to create that sheer number, we have to go through many, many cell divisions in the first few hours of life. And in this video, you're looking at a single fertilized frog egg that goes through many, many rapid and successive divisions in the very first hours of life. So you can imagine that if this process didn't happen at all, or if it went horribly wrong, you would not be able to build a frog at the end of the day. And that is true for humans, for insects, and for any other organism. But remember, we're also thinking about how we got here on the grander timescale of evolution. And I'm specifically interested in a process called hybridization, where two species mix to create new species and new organisms. You've actually probably already run into some hybrids, perhaps at the fruit section of your grocery store, where a lot of summer fruits are actually hybrids, like this example of pluots and apriums, which are made from plums and apricots. But actually, a lot of the tree of life uses hybridization in its evolutionary history. Even humans have evidence of interbreeding it with early human hominids in our evolution. So it's really not just a tool that farmers use to make more delicious summer fruits. But there's a catch to this. In the tree of life, and when you go outside and see the different species around you, you're really only able to see the species that have survived or the hybridizations that worked out in the evolutionary timescale. But not all hybrids work. 
Many end up being sterile and cannot continue reproducing, but also many pairings don't work out. Now, this is probably intuitive to you if you think about the example of the princess and the frog, where in the absence of magic, it makes sense that this princess and this frog are probably not going to make a hybrid that works out. But this is where my research comes in. I use closely related frog species to ask the question of what failures arise in cell division due to hybridization. Now to answer this question, I first need to introduce you to my cast of froggy characters. I use three different species of African clawed frogs from the genus Xenopus. And here I'm showing Xenopus lavis, the big frog on the left. In the middle, we have the smaller frog, Xenopus tropicalis. And on the right, we have Xenopus borealis, a medium-sized frog. These frogs are really easy to keep and maintain in the lab. But importantly for my work, we're able to isolate their eggs and sperm in order to figure out which hybrids work and which ones don't by mixing and matching them. As you can see in this matrix, if we do these types of experiments, we're actually able to create many different hybrids from these three species. But there are two that don't work out, and these are the ones that I'm interested in. These are hybrids that are created when you take the Xenopus tropicalis egg and fertilize it with either the Xenopus lavis or Xenopus borealis sperm. And throughout my talk, I'll be referring to these as hybrid one and hybrid two. So let's see what happens when you make these hybrids in the lab. I'm gonna show you a video where we have the Xenopus tropicalis embryo on the left and the two hybrids next to it. As the video starts, you'll notice that these hybrids are able to go through cell division seemingly very normally. But then they run into a problem and they die in these really dramatic and pretty horrible ways. Clearly, these are not gonna make frogs at the end of the day. We've shown that these dramatic deaths are due specifically to the loss of paternal DNA. In these three images, I've stained embryos with a DNA dye so that you can see the DNA. In the left, we have the Xenopus tropicalis embryo, where the two populations of DNA are clearly and cleanly getting separated into two distinct cells. But in the hybrids, there are bits and pieces of DNA that are lost in the center of that dividing plane or tossed around the cell pretty haphazardly. So when I first saw this data, I got really interested in figuring out what happens to the paternal DNA during this process of cell division in these hybrids. It's worth noting that DNA goes through a lot of changes in cell division. I'm showing you a movie here where the DNA is labeled in yellow and it's going through many, many changes and actually also has to coordinate with microtubules. These are cables in the cell that will eventually attach to the DNA and physically pull them apart at division. So DNA has to go through two really big changes during this whole cycle. The first of which is replication, where the entire genetic material is completely and accurately duplicated. So that eventually when you get to segregation, these DNA pools can be pulled apart as cleanly and accurately as possible. So if we stop a little bit and look at this in more detail, 
you realize that the DNA changes shape a lot in this process. In particular, during the segregation process, they have to become what are called chromosomes. Here in this image, normally you can see DNA as one big circular lump in a cell. But after going through replication, they start to condense and become these X-shaped rod structures. These are the chromosomes. And these are the structures that then attach to those microtubule cables and get pulled apart during uh, segregation. Importantly, this cycle happens over and over and over again. So after the cell has divided, the DNA comes back together into one circular lump and repeats the process all over again. Now, in an embryo, in the very first hours of life, DNA has to go through this process over and over and over again, very rapidly and in an error-free manner. So it's a big challenge for the embryo and for the DNA. I was really interested to see if evolution had co-opted any of these processes to create mismatches between different species so that potentially maternal and paternal species now are no longer compatible with each other. And in particular, I was really interested in a special region of every chromosome called the centromere. This region is unique because it is the place that builds the machinery so that microtubules can attach to the chromosome and eventually pull them into the dividing cells. And paradoxically, this is one of the most rapidly evolving regions of the genome, despite the fact that it is so essential for this process of cell division. So I hypothesize that perhaps in a hybrid, we're running into a situation where the maternal chromosome and the maternal centromere is well-matched with the surrounding maternal centromeric proteins, which then means that we can maintain the centromere properly and allow it to attach to those microtubule cables. But perhaps on a paternal chromosome, there's been enough evolutionary time that the centromere is now very different. And that means that the proteins from the maternal environment are no longer compatible to maintain that paternal centromere. Now, in order to answer this question, I needed a system that would help me parse out the individual contributions from the paternal DNA, as well as the maternal environment that these chromosomes are in. And actually, a lot of hybrids make that really complicated because we also have to deal with the maternal half of the hybrid genome. But this is where my Xenopus frogs are the perfect system to answer this question because we can make what's called Xenopus frog egg extract, where we can collect the thousands and thousands of eggs that female frogs lay, spin them very, very quickly to separate out the cellular layers, and then isolate just the cytoplasm from these eggs. This is essentially a cellular soup. It has all of the proteins and other biomolecules necessary to maintain cellular activity. And importantly, it's just from the maternal species without any other DNA or membranes or other contaminating components. And so using this system, I'm able to add in different species paternal DNA to see what happens when they enter maternal cytoplasm. And because the cellular soup is still really active, we can look at DNA replication as well as mitotic chromosomes to see what's happening in a much more simplified and controllable environment 
that mimics the embryo in vitro. So I was really excited to use this system and look for the centromere or any other markers on mitotic chromosomes. And here I'm showing you a single Xenopus tropicalis chromosome that has a very normal centromere. And you can see on this chromosome that there is one particular spot labeled with this green centromeric protein. But I was really curious to see that in the hybrids, some chromosomes actually had no centromeric protein marks at all. And so I wanted to count this up and see how prevalent this was in the population of chromosomes. Here in this graph, I'm looking at two different time points of chromosomes, where T equals zero corresponds to a time point before DNA replication, and one hour corresponds to a time point after DNA replication. And on the y-axis, I'm looking at the number of chromosomes that have centromeres in a total population. And when I did this quantification, I was really interested to see that the hybrids start to lose some centromeres only after going through DNA replication. So this gave me a really interesting phenotype to study, and I was really interested in trying to figure out how I could rescue these centromeres in the hybrids. Is there something that I could do to save the centromeres and make sure that they are maintained in hybrids? So first off, let's start with hybrid one. I wanted to see if the rapid evolution of the centromere and the centromeric proteins were contributing to this loss of centromeres in hybrids. So I tried to add in to my system just a maternal version of a specific centromere protein called SEMP-A. And as you can see from this graph, that actually didn't give me any rescue of any centromeres. But when I added in the paternal version of the centromeric protein SEMPE, I started to see more centromeres in the hybrid one chromosomes. And this was even more evident when I also added in a paternal specific centromere helper protein called HDRP. So that essentially now all of these chromosomes still maintained their centromeres after DNA replication. And this is really exciting because you can essentially see evolution at work. Clearly, there's something about these paternal chromosomes and these paternal centromeres that are a little bit different, that only the paternally matched proteins are able to help maintain that locus. And the maternal proteins in the hybrid were not doing the job. Now, you may also recall that I actually have two hybrids that I'm interested in. And at this point, you might be wondering what happened to hybrid two. And I was really excited after seeing my results from hybrid one that I went and tried all of the analogous experiments for hybrid two to look for the same type of centromere incompatibility. But actually all of my data was negative. I was really disappointed and really confused because there's a lot that happens in cell division and I had no hints of where to go next. So this is essentially what my brain looked and felt like and I didn't know what to do next until one day I was looking at a data set from hybrid two and again I was looking for centromere rescue so I was really disappointed that I wasn't getting any positive data. And then I noticed something interesting about the chromosomes. Normally chromosomes look like these rod shaped spaghetti structures but 
some chromosomes in my hybrid 2 dataset had these really weird, ultra-thin, stretched regions. And at first I brushed this off because maybe it was just an anomaly. Perhaps I did something that day to change the prep a little bit. But then I started noticing them more and more and more in this dataset. So I counted them up and I was really surprised because when I looked at the number of stretched chromosomes across my different time points, both before and after DNA replication, the stretched chromosomes were really prevalent in hybrid 2 alone and only after DNA replication. This was really exciting for a number of reasons. It was one of the first hints I had of something going horribly wrong in the hybrid, but also other people have seen these types of chromosome shapes and morphologies before. They're found in other organisms, and it's also seen when chromosomes have specific points in their DNA that are more fragile and thus more prone to instability. This actually changed my whole paradigm about how I thought about this part of my project. Up until this point, I had been focusing almost exclusively on the segregation half of this DNA cycle, and I was completely ignoring the replication half of it, how the DNA prepares itself and duplicates itself prior to segregation. And it's well appreciated that DNA replication can be really stressful, and this could actually lead to DNA breakage or other aberrations. Specifically, sometimes the replication machinery hits a stressful point in the chromosome and it stops. When this happens, there's a protein called P97 that comes in and helps remove that replication machinery off of the chromosome. This can lead to small nicks and breaks in the DNA that are quickly repaired. But I was really interested to see if my hybrid 2 chromosomes were undergoing more replication stress than normal. So I wanted to see if I could inhibit the action of P97 so that the replication machinery will stay on the chromosome, even if it's stalled, but then there wouldn't be any resulting chromosome breakage, or stretching perhaps. And when I did this experiment, I was so excited because when I treated this uh, hybrid 2 with this drug, I was able to rescue and maintain many, many more centromeres and reduce the number of stretched chromosomes that I saw in hybrid 2. So, in my project looking at two different hybrids, I've actually discovered two different failures in cell division. In my first hybrid, we have centromeric incompatibility, where the paternal chromosome has evolved and changed over time enough that now the maternal proteins are no longer well matched to the paternal centromere to keep that region of the chromosome well maintained. And my second hybrid suffers from increased amounts of replication stress, so that eventually many of the chromosomes end up stretched as a result. And this is really interesting to me because these are two different hybrids with two completely different mechanisms that failed in cell division because of hybridization. And I know, and many other people know, that there are more mechanisms and more potential avenues of failure in cell division alone. 
So it's very cool to see how evolution has co-opted this single essential process of cell division to create barriers across species. And it really points to this fact that not only did we get here due to early cell divisions that built up our cells, but we also got here through this combination with evolution. Importantly, I want to point out that just because hybrids fail doesn't necessarily mean that it's a bad thing. The failures in hybridization also help to keep species unique and separate from each other, contributing to the world's biodiversity. And particularly in a time when we're often losing more biodiversity, studying these types of failures in hybridization help us to understand how we might protect, enhance, or even recreate some biodiversity in our world today. Thank you.